When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where everybody that's on Facebook chats books, and we are currently reading advanced copies of books and chatting with the author's pre-publication. I recently added another early read. For April, we will be reading Linwood Barclay's new fabulous thriller, Take Your Breath Away, and meeting with him on Zoom. I am in the process of scheduling several more. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am speaking with Azar Nafisi about Read Dangerously. Azar is the author of the multi-award-winning New York Times bestseller, Reading Lolita in Tehran, as well as Things I've Been Silent About, The Republic of Imagination, and That Other World. Formerly a fellow at Johns Hopkins University's Foreign Policy Institute, she has taught at Oxford and several universities in Tehran. She lives in Washington, D.C., I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Azar. How are you today? Uh, Fine. Thank you, Cindy. Hope all is well with you. All is well with me, and I hope all is well with you also. Thank you. Yes. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book. It's very thought-provoking and very relevant for the world we're living in. So why don't we start with you just giving a quick summary of Read Dangerously for those that won't have read it yet. Well, I had been for a few years uh, really worried at the direction this country was going, and especially the polarization where um, no one wanted to hear or listen to others. And uh, so I kept thinking that uh, I want to write about this because the only way I could um, come to terms with the current situation and come to terms with my anxieties about where we are going was to write. And uh, I didn't want to write just simple essays. I wanted something more intimate. And um, to make a long story short, uh, I first uh, started by writing to the authors I had chosen, but that looked a little artificial. 
And I was telling my friend about it, and she told me, why don't you write a third person? And all of a sudden, a light went in my head, and I thought, father, my father. Um, My father and I had been conversing and writing letters to one another about everything and anything, from very personal matters to the state of the world, to the books we read, to ideas and imagination. So I chose five letters, each of them focused on uh, uh, certain books, and I tried to show how in times like this, fiction becomes so important and essential to our lives. Well, first, I thought it was really beautiful, your introduction, where you talk about you and your father writing letters to each other always before he passed. Yes. So it made sense that this book was then in letters. So I thought that was wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Um, I The first time he wrote me a letter was when I couldn't read. I was four years old, and he created a diary just for me uh, in which he addressed me, and he told me, about uh, both the things that gave him joy and things that made him anxious about future. And uh, then I wrote to him when he was studying in America, and I was only six years old. Uh, And he was the one who told me stories. And I thought that the time has come to reverse our roles and for me to tell him about my stories, about the books that I have been reading. So then the second thing I was going to say is that I am frequently talking about the importance of fiction and how I feel that it really does make people understand people different than they are or situations different than they are, sometimes a lot better than nonfiction because it's the power of story. And I think if you're walking in somebody else's shoes and you're reading about the stories that they're telling you, you feel like it's something similar to you and you realize, oh, you know, we're not so different or you understand better where they're coming from. So exactly what you're saying is what I feel like I say all the time. And so I was really happy to come across your book. Yeah, you exactly, you said it. That is the way I feel as well. And I feel that um, uh, what we are facing today is not just about one individual, like the former president or a group, an organization. It's a mindset and it's a totalitarian mindset that imposes its own ideology upon diverse group of people and um, goes for elimination, not understanding, which, as you said, fiction is based on. It's based on understanding and having you walk around in other people's shoes, as you said, in order for us to experience those others as we experience ourselves. And connect to them in that way. Uh, One of the most important things about fiction that stands up to totalitarian mindsets is that it uh, gives voice to all the characters. It is very democratic. Democracy is part of its structure. You, uh, in a great novel, you are constantly hearing different voices in relation to one another and sometimes in opposition to one another. A bad writer, like a dictator, imposes his own uh, desires and urges upon other people, silencing everybody's voice and creating not a dialogue, but a monologue. 
And to live in a healthy society, we need that democratic aspect of fiction. And in the same way that we need um, to connect to others, because fiction is about others. We constantly write about others. We feel deeply about what we write, and part of us is always part of the fiction we write. But at the same time, a good writer tries to go under the skin of every character to become every single character, including the villain. And uh, that is so different from this totalitarian mindset that denies you any voice. Well, you must have found it interesting to write this book, have the publication date set, and then all of a sudden, nine months ago, six months ago, all of this banned book stuff has reared its head again. I just found it so fascinating when I was reading your book because now we're reading all about banned books all over again. It's just crazy. It is crazy, and it is bad kind of crazy. Absolutely. I have always been, when, when I came back to United States, one thing that worried me was the way we treated imagination and ideas. Uh, one way of destroying imagination and ideas is through banning books taking away the voice, the diverse voices from both writers and readers at the same time. Another way of doing it is becoming indifferent towards books, indifferent towards ideas, indifferent towards imagination. Because imagination, imaginative knowledge, is a way of relating to the world, perceiving the world, and changing the world. It is not something that you have at one point and then it goes out of fashion and now you have your iPhone so you don't need to imagine. It has been with us since the dawn of man and it will be with us long after we're all gone. So I think when we disregard fiction, disregard stories, we are disregarding part of ourselves, the part that is human and humane. And so uh, it becomes very important in turbulent times like now to go back to stories, uh, to read and reread as much as we can and to share it with others. I think that's exactly right. Where I struggle is I feel like everything has become so polarized and the misinformation and the disinformation is everywhere. It's not on one particular side. I think it's everywhere. And so it's difficult when somebody will come to me and say something that I know isn't right, but I don't really know how to counteract it. And, you know, that's where I kind of sometimes stumble because I'm like, well, I know that cannot be correct, but I don't necessarily have the facts or the data or whatever it is to counter what they're saying. And that frustrates me sometimes. But I do think that fiction can't necessarily provide you that data, but it can provide a more sympathetic rendering of someone where if I read a book about someone that maybe I wasn't familiar with, it really does introduce me to them and their life and make me realize we're not very different, but also understand potentially why choices are made. That's exactly what fiction does, what you said. And that is why uh, we so need it today in times of crisis. Um, Fiction appeals to two uh, 
um, very human attributes. One, the first one is curiosity. Uh, both fiction and science are processes of investigation. Uh, science investigates the biology and nature and, and is curious about them. Fiction uh, goes into our hearts and soul and tries to discover who we are as human beings and who we can become. And so um, through curiosity, we build this bridge towards other people. And as you said, when you read their stories, uh, you become much more um, sympathetic, empathetic towards them. And that is the second attribute, empathy. Uh, which is at the heart of fiction and is so important to us. We discover that both in, a, in terms of our worst and best attributes, uh, we share them uh, with other people. You know, I think it is not difference that is so surprising. A lot of times we are surprised by this shock of recognition of ourselves within others. If you don't have that connection, uh, you can have no dialogue. And that is why I guess you feel frustrated and I and so many others feel frustrated because we cannot connect to others. Uh, it, it's taken away from us. Well, I think so much of this political rhetoric yeah. is designed to separate us and to make people seem like they are different. And so I think you're exactly right. It's not the differences that surprise because that's all that's talked about. It's instead, oh, they're really not that different from me at all. And we're all human and we're all experiencing emotions, sadness, happiness, whatever it is. And then also just to understand like cultural differences and things like that. And this is why it's done. This is why we do this one way. It's why somebody else might do it another. I think sometimes having that understanding and that explanation can make all the difference. Definitely. It's, um, that is why both curiosity leads to empathy. Right. You know, I always remember uh, Vladimir Nabokov saying, um, curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. Uh, because um, what fiction does and what curiosity and empathy do, they question not just the world, but they question us, the readers, uh, that uh, we have to go into. I, uh, I always bring the example from Alice in Wonderland. I think a good reader is like Alice. She doesn't read in order to confirm her presuppositions. She doesn't read to only read about herself. She reads in order to find out about the world. That is also why we write. Margaret Atwood was asked, how do you write? And she said, it seems as if there are voices from distant villages beckoning me. It seems as if there is a bloody cleaver uh, in the middle of the living room. And I ask myself, hmm, what's that cleaver doing there? It needs to be investigated. So act of writing and reading becomes not elimination of others, but an investigation of the others, an investigation of unknown. Uh, it is so boring 
to want to only write about yourself, think about yourself, read about yourself. Fiction fights that boredom and uh, brings us out of ourselves. And uh, the only way we can celebrate difference is we ha- if we have that understanding that you're talking about. I think that's exactly right. I was curious as I was reading your book, how you did your groupings, like how did you decide who you grouped with who? And did it take a while to kind of get your format down and to structure it the way you did? Oh, God, it took me forever. Um, It was also a good excuse for reading a lot because I convinced myself that I need to read hundreds of books in order to be able to choose. Um, So it took me a long time. And at first, I have many more writers than the ones uh, that I now have in the book. But I decided that if I bring in that many books, I won't be able to focus on them. And uh, I did want to have focus on each of these people. And sometimes um, in the process of writing, other writers came to my mind. Uh, Like um, I was reading, rereading actually, uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. And it just occurred to me that uh, the character, the main character in there, the the protagonist, is a victim of racism to such an extent that she has completely lost her identity, that she feels the only way she can be acceptable is if she had blue eyes. She now defines herself in terms of her enemy. Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes in Watching God, the character is also a victim of racism, but she acts exactly opposite of the first character. She wants to be independent. She doesn't care what other people say about her. Uh, She wants to reach the horizon, as she says. So uh, one book led me to think about a character that is exact opposite, but they're both women and they're both uh, uh, African-American. So they have that in common, but they take two very different attitudes. Uh, So that was how I found my books. How wonderful to be able to read a ton of books to be able to write your book. How fun was that? That was the funnest part. I uh, really cherished every moment that I read these books. Some of them I had read before, one or two I hadn't. Uh, But um, every time I read a book, I'm amazed at how there was one aspect of the book that I had missed. Back to what you said earlier in terms of reading The Bluest Eye and then it making you think about Their Eyes Were Watching God. I find that that happens all the time. I'll be reading a book and some portion of the story, a character, a setting, something that's happening in the book makes me think about another book. And you just sort of, it's a domino effect. You know, you just start thinking about the next book and the next book and how they connect. And sometimes they're books that wouldn't seem like they had anything in common, but there's something about one that makes you think of the other. You're exactly right. I found that uh, throughout um, reading uh, these books. Uh, uh, For example, I mean, in the first chapter, I have uh, Plato with Salman Rushdie and Ray Bradbury. (laughs) 
An interesting combination, yes. Yeah, but I discovered, I mean, Plato I had forgotten about. I had read in college. And when I was thinking about uh, the fatwa against Rushdie, I remembered Plato's Republic and how hierarchical that society was. And it was really a struggle between the poet who was unruly and contradictory and full of ambiguity and contradictions and um, the philosopher king who would tell the people a noble lie in order to keep them in their place. Uh, And of course, Ray Bradbury's book was um, about totalitarianism and burning of books. Uh, So they all came together. Uh, But uh, at the first glance, you would think, what? I very much enjoyed finding similarities in dissimilar books. I agree. I enjoyed looking at your chapter heads and the authors and then looking forward to how they were going to be connected as I read the chapter. Yeah, they are very different, but at the same time, they have something in common. Uh, I mean, the writers in this book, they have all uh, undergone turbulent times. So I, I wanted to show how during these times, fiction reveals us to ourselves. And, uh, you know, one other thing about the times we live in, uh, and especially about the politicians that you mentioned, is uh, the fact that to lie has become a way of living. Uh, we uh, and and politicians, uh, those with totalitarian mindsets, of course, tell you the biggest lies. And the biggest lie right now um, about um, uh, the election, 2020 elections, uh, uh, to some is the truth. Now, fiction, what it does, it reveals the truth. And it is always dangerous to reveal the truth because once you know it, you cannot um, remain silent. You have to speak up. Writers are truth tellers. They're witnesses. And um, they have to tell the story the way it happened. And many in power are afraid of the truth. And their brutality, their viciousness, um, the way they eliminate people, all of this is um, not out of strength, but uh, because of their weakness, because they are afraid. They're afraid of truth, and they want to destroy truth. But it's interesting to me, because I, I agree with everything you're saying, but in many countries that are ruled by a dictator, and things are truly locked down, and speaking up could cause reprisal and could cause problems. You know, we don't live in a country like that. So it's very frustrating to me when you have these people that are clearly spouting lies and it's not things that can't be backed up. I mean, they're very straightforward and people are still believing them. And that to me is almost more frightening because they're not having to do it and they're not being held down or worried about their family disappearing or not having food or spending 20 years in prison. Whatever is going to happen in some of these other countries, instead, they're just believing it anyway. And to me, that's almost worse. It is. Um, You know, Ray Bradbury talked about you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture. All you have to do is to get people not to read. Right. 
And uh, that is what has happened uh, in this country, especially to a segment of the population, uh, that um, we have become too complacent and too comfortable because thinking needs um, a bit of courage and um, complexity, ambiguity, and we have stopped thinking. It is much easier to accept something that someone says, to accept that person as your guru or your godfather, and um, just um, go along with what he says and uh, fabricate enemies so that, for example, in this case, um, uh, the media all of a sudden becomes not media, but enemy of the people, to fabricate enemies in order to be satisfied with uh, your own prejudices, be complacent. And uh, that is the danger that is um, threatening us today. Absolutely. And I think some of it's education-based as well. Our education system is such a mess. And I just think so many people are not exposed to some of these ideas, whether it's through intentional non-exposure or just because the systems are so bad. So it does, it creates quite a problem. And until your eyes are opened and you are exposed to other people and learning about them and understanding that some of this hateful rhetoric or most of the hateful rhetoric is not at all valid, then I think it's difficult. Yes, I remember a quote by James Baldwin saying, ignorance allied with power uh, is the most vicious enemy of justice. Exactly. This kind of thinking, the totalitarian mindset, counts on ignorance. Right. It counts on ignorance and it counts on lies. And that is why we become so frustrated because, as you said, in this country, we don't kill people or put them in jail because of what they write or what they read. But we do something else. We encourage them to become indifferent. We encourage them not to think. And uh, that is where the danger lies. I remember uh, I ended uh, reading Lolita in Tehran uh, with a warning uh, about the West. And I brought this quotation from Saul Bellow. I don't remember it all, but uh, what he said, the gist of it was that in Russia, um, Stalin's crimes are so naked uh, that they don't need any explanation. I mean, they are brutal, uh, nakedly brutal. But he said, in the West, what threatens us is our sleeping consciousness and our atrophy of feeling. And that is what is threatening this country today as we speak. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's something we could talk about all day and be a little bit depressed. (laughs) But um, what have you read recently that you really liked or that you feel might be a good suggestion for somebody that is trying to broaden their horizons? I I was telling you that I am uh, very promiscuous when it comes to books. I love them all, or at least I love a big chunk of them. And uh, uh, so it's difficult for me to recommend. But I was thinking of this um, uh, woman writer, Elif Shafak, who is originally from Turkey, uh, but she is based in London. She wrote this uh, marvelous book called Four Rules of Love, a novel of Rumi. 
And uh, talking of banning books, I think we should all reread Art Spiegelman's Mouse and Peter Cease's Nikki and Vera. Uh, Nikki and Vera, the subtitle is A Quiet Hero of the Holocaust and the Children He Rescued. Peter Cease is an amazing writer and illustrator. His books are just simply heartbreakingly beautiful. Uh, so, and recently I reread, after many, many years, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude, which is a beautiful novel and uh, pertinent to our times. Apart from that, all the books I mention in my books, especially now in my um, most recent book, I recommend them to everyone. Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful list. I love James Baldwin, and I was happy to see him show up in your book. Oh, I love him. I'm so in love with him. His writing is just beautiful, and he's just so profound. Yes, he's, he writes with his heart, but he uses his mind so well as well. And uh, I finished Republic of Imagination with an epilogue on James Baldwin, but I felt that uh, my conversation with him has not ended. It has remained unfinished. So this book was uh, partly inspired by reading Baldwin. I wanted to finish our conversation, but I think I still have things to tell him. (laughs) Well, good. You can get ready for your next book then. (laughs) Yes. Well, Azar, thank you so much for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Your book was very interesting, definitely made me think, and I hope it will do the same for everyone else. Thank you so much, Cindy. I loved our conversation. Thank you. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional professional Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, Happy reading. reading!